0: And welcome to Resident Advisor's Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Blueprint might not be run like a business or even have the sort of expertly laid out master plan its name suggests, but the label has proven that a labor of love can find immense success regardless. James Ruskin and his partner Richard Polson founded Blueprint during a mid-90s bubbling up in UK techno, and the label's sound, manifest in productions by Ruskin, Poulson, and fellow obsessive Oliver Ho, quickly found favor with the likes of Surgeon and Regis, not to mention heads in Germany, Spain, and beyond. When Polson died suddenly in the mid-2000s, Ruskin took a step back from the label, unsure of how to proceed when such a big part of its soul had been lost. But in 2009, Blueprint emerged as strong as it had ever been, with new signings mingling with Ruskin's sturdy, driving techno sound. When Ruskin came through Berlin recently for one of Blueprint's annual Bearkind showcases, we invited him by our office. To give us the rundown on a life spent at the center of techno. So my understanding is that before techno, you were really big into hip hop, that this was sort of your original
1: musical love. Is that right? Uh, yes. First musical love, probably not. My eldest brother was 10 years older than me. So my my kind of first passion was for kind of early ska and, and punk, um, you know, the, the specials and the beat and these kind of bands were, were very big in my kind of early musical interests. So yeah because I had a brother that was that much older than me it was it was kind of he, he was bringing records home and uh, I always had an interest in what he was he was bringing home so that was kind of the first thing that I really became absorbed with and that kind of progressed onto kind of more electronic sounds um I got a Jean-Michel Jarre album for Christmas when I was a kid Equinox I just became obsessed with how this kind of otherworldly sound was created the whole synthesizer thing and yeah it kind of it, it sort of progressed from there really and this this kind of period in the the early 80s early to mid 80s when the, the very early hip-hop and electro was kind of happening it, it just absorbed me very very quickly
0: very yeah, it cool. seems like that could have been sort of an introduction to DJ culture to the to the whole idea of playing records.
1: Yes, definitely. I mean, um, you know, when I was at school, me and a friend of mine used to mess around with tape decks and, and and this kind of thing, and became very interested in how how this whole thing was put together. And you know, it became all absorbing very very quickly. When did you actually
0: make contact with techno? I mean, you kind of got into the scene in uh, in the UK. A kind of an interesting pivot point. I mean, there had been Detroit and there had been stuff yeah. coming out of Berlin. The London thing was kind of new. I would imagine that Detroit or Berlin was like how you would have first made contact with techno.
1: Well, it depends when you think techno began, I think. You know, I still consider a lot of the kind of early Cybertron stuff, which is electro to all intents and purposes. But that was kind of the pathway from the, from the mid 80s. But, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to leave school in 88. And be at a point where I could get into nightclubs. So I left school during the May and that whole explosion over that period was was just such an eye opener. So I suppose that it changed from sitting at home listening to these things and, and taping a lot of stuff off the radio and buying whatever records I could to it becoming something that just took over my weekends and Mm -hmm. you know but it it was it was a time that there was a shift in culture and a shift in music that I'm not sure we'll ever see the likes of again to be honest that really took over everything for me and uh yeah I think that's when it really took hold
0: what year was that and what sort of shift are we actually talking about like
1: You know, during 1988, I think, is when it became more recognised, I I guess, because it it was splashed all over the papers, this kind of acid house culture and all this. You know, before it was really incredibly underground. You really had to search records out. You know, it wasn't mainstream in any sense. But once this this kind of shift in club culture happened, where during this period, I think that was the huge change.
0: When you speak to people who lived through that Mm. in the UK, 1988, I mean, it, it really does sound like it was an absolutely mind-blowing experience. You were hearing things that you just didn't even know were possible to hear. And it sounds like that's what happened this, to it, you. is
1: exactly what happened, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I, I suppose I had a background in it anyway because of the type of records I was listening to. And uh, mm-hmm. there was a, a series called The Electro Series. Um, that was essentially compilation albums of, of stuff that was... Uh, that was around at that time and I was already listening to a lot of this kind of thing but when the Acid House thing started it was a, a massive change and I think with me it was probably bigger because I was at an age where I could go to the clubs and listen to the music it, it took on a whole new perspective you know all of a sudden I could get into nightclubs and listen to this music this this otherworldly music insanely loud with like-minded people and Every record that came out, you never knew what was going to happen, you know. There wasn't that many releases coming out, so um, it was opening just doors all the time. It was brilliant. And were you
0: going to the record store at this point? Um, yeah, buying I, was, these I, was, I
1: was buying records, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I did way prior to this. That's what I spent my money on. But now it all came together because I was, you know, involved in it as a scene as well as just buying the music and listening to it at home.
0: Yeah, because sort of between 1988, you know, the second summer of love that people talk about, mm. and when you started to break through as a, as a DJ, as a producer, uh, as a label owner with Blueprint, there was a bit of a gap there. What were you sort of doing before people started to know James Ruskin as sort of this byword for techno in, in London? Well,
1: a lot of it happened by chance. I ended up in the very early 90s, around uh, 91, I think. I'm, I'm not great with dates, but around 91, I ended up sharing a flat with a guy that put on nights and also was having kind of studio time and stuff like that so because i bought so many records i kind of ended up getting the odd, odd slot at these nights and i he didn't drive and i did <laughs> so i was giving him lifts to to the studio when he was working on a couple of tracks so that's kind of how it started to become a situation where i thought you know i really i want to get beyond going out and listening to the music. I want to be involved in the creation and I want to be involved in every aspect of what had taken over my life, basically. Blueprint seems like it was kind of the embodiment of that. At the time, there was very little outlet for that type of music. You know, as the 90s progressed, it became very specific. There was a club called Lost in London, run by Steve Bicknell and Cherie, and uh, that was kind of our home. That's where we went you know it was where we went to see Jeff Mills it's where we went to see Robert Hood it, you know it's where the sound that we were looking for was at home in this club so um yeah everything centered around this club really in london and uh richard polson who I set the label up with started blueprint with he was uh we'd started to go into somebody else's studio messing around just thinking come on let's let's try and make some tracks And at the time, he was buying records from a record shop on the Isle of Wight, which is an island off the south coast of England. Kind of an interesting place to have a record shop. Really, it's bizarre how this all came about. So he was was buying records off this guy called Mark from this record shop. Blind, essentially. You know, he'd play him stuff down the phone. Or obviously, (laughs) this is before we had internet clips and stuff like that. And, you know, he'd send him over records. So we went into the studio and came up with a couple of tracks. And Richard sent them to this to this guy to see what he thought he um he said well look i've got a friend who's starting a label which was a um someone called josh brent who done shat tracks i don't know if you ever remember Mm -hmm. Um, yeah really amazing producer really amazing producer anyway he was starting a, a record label and uh he said look josh may be interested in these tracks and he took them on and that was our first release it was on a label called guilty which was a relatively short thing. You know, it it didn't continue for very long. But in the meantime, they set up a distribution company. What we realised was that, uh, you know, we'd used somebody else's studio for these tracks, which uh, was great. But if you're writing music and going in to record that music, that's one thing. But for electronic music, there's, there's a massive amount of experimentation and, you know, to realise what you're what you're looking for, so it became very obvious very quickly that we needed our own equipment. Studio time is very expensive. Studio, yeah, I mean, we this this wasn't kind of a major studio or anything. It was it was you know nothing like that, but you, you still had to pay. And so we realised that it was it was going to be much better off investing in our own equipment to kind of realise what we were trying to do. You know, and and around these these times there, there was a huge amount of investment involved, even though we were using budget, secondhand equipment, it was still a lot of money compared to to how things happen today, where you've got a studio and a laptop. It didn't happen then. We you had to be so dedicated and and you know, you bought equipment and you you rinsed it out to get what you could out of it because you had certain things to do, certain jobs, and that's all you had. So we, you know, we realized that this is how we wanted to progress, to do everything ourselves. And sat with this equipment and, uh, you know, started putting tracks together. And during this period, we found out that the guy in the Isle of Wight was actually starting up a distribution company. So he offered us a P&D deal, which we took up very quickly. So we went from recording a few tracks to being signed to a label, which we thought was the way we were going to go, to all of a sudden we were starting our own label. And this all happened in a very short space of time. And yeah, that's, that's really how it began. It's interesting because
0: Blueprint really was such a self-contained operation. Yeah. I mean, very independent. I mean, it was being run just by you guys. But then it was also you and Oliver Ho were basically
1: responsible for all of the music as well. Yeah, I mean, it was a chance meeting with Oliver. I was doing a a sound engineering course at City of Westminster, just purely so I didn't have to get a proper job and I could dedicate my time to trying to get this thing moving. There was another guy on my course that was another lost devotee. And they had a kind of open day at this theatre that was also at the college, where people could come down with their bands and perform. Oliver turned up with this guy, the guy that was on my course, and they did this kind of rudimentary live set, which, you know, in all honesty, wasn't overly successful, but you just knew there was something there. So I spoke to Oliver that day and basically said, send us a demo if you've got any tracks that are done, and was essentially trying to sell him a label that at the time didn't actually exist. So I was selling him an idea as, look, do you want to come on board? And yeah, that's how that came about, purely a chance meeting. We were such a small scene at the time, you know, that's how things worked. It was, it was crazy. And then Richard did the same course the following year and met Nick Dunton that he runs Surface with and uh, 65D Mavericks. And so, yeah, a a lot kind of came out of this course that we were doing to buy us time, basically.
0: It's interesting what you say as well. Um, You made reference to the fact that the scene was very small at this point. I mean, you were in a very interesting situation. It seems like you guys basically got to create techno in London from scratch in a lot of
1: ways. It was very specific what we wanted to do. You know, there wasn't that much. I mean, obviously there was the kind of downwards thing that started with Surgeon and Regis and that, you know, we felt very much in line with what they were creating, but there wasn't a big outlet, you know. There wasn't that much happening at that time.
0: How did you make contact with with Birmingham originally? You mentioned these guys and that's definitely... From this, this era was the really famous
1: techno scene. We got some white labels of the very first Blueprint record and got hold of Tony Surgeon's address, sent him a record, a white label of the first release, and he phoned up the following day. We were, you know, sat there one evening and the phone goes and it's it was Tony thanking us to, for sending the record, saying he was really into it. And he came down the following weekend to sort of hang out and... uh Tony's been very very instrumental in in the whole thing really to um with the early thing with blueprint we've keeping it going and you know we've been very good friends for a long time now and uh yeah he was very instrumental so he came down and th- and that was kind of how it started I mean I think we went up to Birmingham to House of God shortly after that and met Carl and yeah we've been involved in one way or another ever since I would imagine
0: that the scene, though, kind of as Blueprint went on in London, did start to grow. Techno kind of took a little bit more of a foothold in
1: London it kind of snowballed relatively quickly but there was still only a handful of clubs that were dealing with it I mean we you know Lost was always still the biggest thing going on in London but there, there was other things going on you know you had House of God Atomic Jam in Birmingham you know the Orbit and Leeds there was a lot going on and Spain really embraced what was happening with the kind of UK scene as well so we were we were travelling there a lot and we were coming to Berlin a lot as well you know it, it kind of it snowballed fairly quickly
0: this was before I mean now you know on a given weekend there are probably 15, 20 DJs or something coming over from the UK to play in Berlin. A lot of people from Berlin coming over to the UK, coming over to London to play. But at that time, it wasn't quite on that same level. It was a little strange when you would come over to play Trezor, sort of a different experience, I guess.
1: Oh, it was a a totally different experience. I mean, Tony Surgeon had a a residency at Trezor. So the first time I came over was for, for his night, which is how that whole kind of thing came about. I came over to play a couple of times and then uh, Tony had just done an album and we started talking about, you know, doing some recording for them as well. And you know, the relationship went on for quite a long time, but it was very different coming over here back then, you know, in the, in the 90s to play in, in that kind of environment. It was pretty exciting times all rounds, you know.
0: Were the parties quite different than the ones that you were used to going to either in in London or elsewhere in in the
1: UK? Not really, no, because we were still in these kind of warehouse type environments and it was very, um, it wasn't polished in any way whatsoever. So it wasn't massively different. There is obviously differences, but there's a lot of similarities as well, you know.
0: Blueprint is quite a long running label at this point, but you've always been... Very judicious it seems about exactly what gets released there haven 't been a huge number of catalog numbers
1: The thing about it is is that, that you know what I found quite early on is the scene isn 't run by businessmen. This whole thing grew out of uh, out of uh, enthusiasts and fans as opposed to to, to businessmen and that 's why this, you know there's been a hell of a lot of mistakes along the way, but it' survived, and blueprint has never been treated as a business it 's a moment in time and it 's something that has has grown with me I guess so I've never treated it as a as anything more more than that you know things happen when they happen and that that won't ever change would you consider yourself
0: though with the way you run the label or or with the the way that you listen for music for the label to be a bit of a
1: perfectionist I, I guess so. I mean, it's it's kind of very specific what I would be looking for for the label. But then I couldn't explain to someone what that is. It could be something that all of a sudden means something to me. And that's that's how it works. So, you know, if someone was to say to me, what are you looking for? I, I couldn't tell you. I really couldn't tell you. It would just be when I listen to it, I know. But an explanation, pff, you know, that's not going to happen. But the whole thing with, with Blueprint is that it evolves with me and just things happen when they happen. A lot of that evolution has sort of straddled
0: kind of a couple of different eras in in techno. There was kind of the the time when you were getting started, which was sort of this kind of massive resurgence of techno, techno becoming a bit more globalized. And then sort of on the other end with the emergence of the Berghain kind sound, which I guess is sort of the era that we're in now. What about that middle place? It seems like for a lot of your career, techno wasn't quite so fashionable maybe. <sighs>
1: Yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, I, f- for me, it's not as if it ever went anywhere. I mean, there is there is a lot of talk of resurgence, et cetera, which, yes, from a kind of commercial standpoint, maybe, but it, it never went anywhere. It's it's always been there throughout my career with the music. The thing is that during the, the kind of late 90s, everything became, it kind of reached a level where I think the people involved needed to sort of step back for a minute and take stock of what was happening with the scene you know, we ended up with just this huge wall of sound and there was just kind of nowhere it seemed for anyone to go. And you hear
0: people talk about that a lot, how there was a point at which techno like ceased to be fun or something. It got so dark and so heavy that there wasn't really a lot of dancing to be done to it or a lot of fun to be had with it.
1: No, it became very, well, certain certain types became very... Uh almost difficult and 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 people were turned off a little bit i guess but uh things do come round you know the tempo's dropped to a degree and you know there was there was some space in the music again which is very important and we're at a point now where people are are listening a lot more back then we had a few magazines that were giving us information about what was going on so there was a lot of dictation going on as opposed to now where you can go and find out what you want to find out about Mm. anything you know you're not limited to these handful of sources that's also important, you know. But the music is still here. I mean, we, you know, it's been around for a long time now, and there's there's no sign of it going anywhere. You mentioned, you know, kind of taking a step back to
0: to take stock. Mm. I know that um, Blueprint sort of went on hiatus yeah. for a while. Take me through the decision to sort of take Blueprint out of things for a little bit. Was that sort of a taking stock
1: process? No, uh, Richard passed away suddenly, and I struggled to have any connection with with anything. Um, around that time, it was a, it was a huge shock. It was something that that kind of really overtook my life at the time. The whole thing was was built around myself and Richard, uh, you know, from before Blueprint even began. So when he passed away, I just I, I just didn't have this attachment at that time. I felt very detached from everything. As time moved on, I realised that it was part of his legacy. You know, it was it was part of 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 him to allow that to disintegrate would have been a crime really. So after a period of time, I decided it was time to move on, as Nick Dunton has done with Surface, which was uh, Richard's label, you know. But at that time, I just I, I didn't have the connection to make music. I, and I couldn't sit there and make music for the sake of making it. So I, I kind of switched off a little bit. And when the time was right and I, I started getting back in the studio again, it felt good and it felt that it was the right time to move forward. And it was also, you know, there was this sort of, because this would have
0: been 2009 when the label sort of first came back.
1: Yeah, around that time. Mm -hmm. And
0: that was another sort of like new, very exciting era for techno. When you sort of stepped back into it, did it feel like a lot had changed?
1: Well, you know, I mean, I was still involved because I was out DJing every weekend. So it wasn't that I'd completely removed myself from the scene and didn't have any contact with it. But I'd started doing a lot of gigs with Regis, with Carl, uh, as OVR. And we began our first kind of studio sessions together. So this whole thing came together at, at the right time. I decided I was ready. I decided I wanted to get the label back together. And I was in the studio recording with, with Carl. So, you know, we put the the first OVR 12 together and that's, that's how things progressed. You know, it's, it's another thing that timing It's all about timing and, you know, where you are at any given moment. And, uh, it felt right to come back and, and it felt right for that to be the record to come back with. There've been a lot of collaborations
0: that, that you've done throughout the years. That seems like it's a big part of your studio process.
1: Yes and no. I mean, there've been quite a few over, over the years, probably more so now, but I think a large part of my catalogue would have been sort of solo stuff. But yeah, I mean the early, the early recordings outline, et cetera, was, was with Richard. There's been collaborations with Surgeon We've done a couple of releases, you know, the OVR projects. And, and and of course, now I'm doing the things with Mark Broom. It's a very different process now. It's very difficult. It was very difficult years ago, I found, to be in the studio with someone writing music. What I really love now with collaborations is you can sit there with with the computer on and bounce ideas backwards and forwards between each other's studios. Because you go down alleys that aren't necessarily going to work and you need that time to try and develop that idea. Now, for the other person sat there, that's, that's, it's, it's not a lot of fun. So I like this idea of, of this bouncing um, ideas backwards and forwards remotely. It really works for, for me.
0: Yeah, that's one of the major advantages, I guess, of you know computers kind of coming
1: into the mix with everything. Definitely.
0: Are, in, in the studio now, are you mostly working in the box? Are you working with a lot of
1: hardware? No. I went through a stage of becoming more and more in the box. and. Over the last year, I've been gradually getting all my old kit out and using the the computer as a, as a as a recorder and a, like a post production tool, as opposed to a sound source and and everything. It, it took me a long time to realise that I wasn't necessarily getting to the exact point that I wanted to get to. There, there was something that I felt I could move forward, and you know that's come from a combination of of using my hardware and the computer in unison. So I found that you can get really sucked into the whole kind of software thing where you've got hundreds of plugins, you know, hundreds. What what I've tended to do now is is I have plugins for specific jobs. And they're there for a reason. You know, I'm not constantly looking for, for new thing, you know, I have I have certain tools for certain jobs. And I'm enjoying having the hardware out again. You know, I, just the whole interaction with with the cabling and all that. It just seems to add a weight and a presence that I was I, I felt I was lacking in working completely in the box. So I'm at a situation now where the the studio's integrated in a way that I've I've never been happier with. You know, I, I feel I'm enjoying it more than ever, to be honest. Making the music and and just interacting with the equipment again, which I, I'd kind of lost when I went down the, the software route completely. So taking a step back has, has been really good.
0: Yeah, that's something that you hear a lot of a lot of guys say now, that, that they really enjoy
1: embracing hardware again. You lose this tactile thing and you don't, it, it happens over a period of time. And I'm not, you know, I didn't realize it was happening. And it wasn't until I, you know, I started getting my keyboards out, getting my drum machines out and, and, I always used them, but I was just, you know, they were coming out, I was recording some lines and then they were going away again. Whereas now I'm integrating it in a in a way that's much more fluid and, and um, you forget how much you're losing of this tactile thing.
0: Was there a certain experience, like a certain collaboration or a certain project that actually got you to start utilizing those machines in a different way? Or
1: or was it just sort of something that happened quite naturally? It, it happened naturally. I just sat there and, and just looked around me and just saw all this kit in my studio and just thought, hang on a minute, why why am I not using this stuff? Why am I using this soft synth when I've got, you know, all these synthesizers here? Why, why am I doing that? And, uh, you know, I started questioning it, you know, questioning my approach to recording. And uh, I took a step back, started taking a couple of pieces out and, and slowly but surely got to the point where I'm using a setup that I've never been happier with.
0: You mentioned OVR a, a little bit before your your project with Regis. Yeah. Do you guys have a pretty good rapport in the studio together?
1: Yeah. I mean, foremost, we're friends. So that helps massively. Yeah, we have a good rapport in the studio. I mean, d- due to geographics, we, we, we don't get to spend as much time as we would like in the studio because, you know, we, we live in different cities, not easy. So we, we are back to this kind of remote thing, but, uh, yeah, he's a friend before this, so that, that kind of helps.
0: Well, and it's interesting too. I mean, you guys have a lot of shared history just in terms of when you were getting into this music, where you guys are from, that must make for a really interesting dynamic working on music.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess, you, you know, you're you're with someone that's grown through the same periods and we, you know, we are still here after 20 years and, you know, we have come through it and uh, we know what we want. I think that's, what's important. We know what we want to achieve. We know what we want to avoid. Blueprint is still definitely a quite a tight knit label in terms of who's releasing on it.
0: But since you brought it back, since the label came back from hiatus, mm. there have been some new names that have been getting involved. It, It's about as varied a a label roster, I think, as you guys have ever had. People like Saya have signed on. There's the duo Lacker, who's there. Tell me about some of these new signings and kind of how you came to bring these people into into Blueprint.
1: With the Lacker guys, I I heard they did a release for a Berlin label. I was just really into it and uh, just contacted them, which is not something I do normally, but um, yeah, contacted them and, and asked them if they wanted to sort of, if they had any tracks around, if they wanted to send something over. They sent over a raft of material they were working on and there was just something, immediately something there, you know. I really embraced what they're doing, you know, and I found it interesting what they were doing and there was just this kind of, this this air about the music I was really into. So that's really how that came about, you know, just from a call and uh, and yeah, we did those couple of releases. They're an interesting group for you guys. I mean, you can totally see
0: where they fit in, but their approach to techno is kind of, from a very different angle, it would seem, at least on the surface, from the way that, you know, maybe the label had approached techno before.
1: Yeah, definitely. But then, as you mentioned earlier, a lot of the output was via myself or so. That's what was important about their releases was it was markedly different and it did have a different edge, but it still fits and it still feels right. You know, I think they're two of the, the, the best releases on the label.
0: Saya as well. Yes. Um, I mean, he's somebody who just seems like kind of such a dead ringer for for
1: Blueprint. How did you first come across him? In fact, it was a similar sort of situation. He'd had a couple of releases out and I just really enjoying what he was doing. There was this kind of, uh, just sonically, I kind of connected with the records that he put out. So um, yeah, I p- approached him and uh, similar sort of situation really. And, you know, we're trying to get a, or he's trying to get another 12 together at the moment, which should be happening fairly soon. And you know, I, I like to keep um, ongoing relationships. So, you know, I don't just want to put a twelve out and forget about it. Uh, you know, I like people to grow with the label. Like I say, it's not run as a business in any in any respect whatsoever. Far from it. It's about more than that.
0: In addition to putting out records, being very active as a DJ yourself, it seems um, to me just looking at club listings in London that Blueprint is quite involved in the London scene. And uh, that there are quite a lot of parties that involve Blueprint artists, whether they're full on showcases or not.
1: Tell me a bit about your involvement kind of specifically in your hometown scene. Again, happened by accident, really. When I relaunched the label, a club called Cable approached me to do a, uh, a relaunch party. And I had no intention, no want to be a promoter in any respect whatsoever. It was just something that I didn't want to get involved with. But, you know, we thought, okay, let's do this one party. And, uh, and uh, that would be that, which we did. The club then approached us to do a couple more. This then progressed to kind of, you know, four or five a year. Yeah, so I, I kind of ended up, or Blueprint ended up being a promoter by default, if you like. But we had a home. It was somewhere that we, you know, we enjoyed putting parties on. We had the opportunity to put on lineups that we wanted. We did that until the club suddenly shut, which was a shock as we had several other things planned. So we we got in a situation where we had to take a step back again. You know, look at what we're going to do. And... um we ended up in talks with Hydra. AJ was originally who got us involved with cable, so we already had a working relationship, and we'd put a lot of, of work in. We put a lot of effort in to getting these parties to a point, and we decided it was you know it, it was we should keep going. So we're continuing, not as frequently as we were, but we're you know we're putting on specific events during the year. And yeah, it, it, like I say, it's not something that was planned, it, you know, really wasn't something that was planned, but it's working very well. Working with um, Dolan and AJ, it's not something that could happen without them because I'm not a promoter. You have to be very aware of your strengths and your weaknesses, and they're very, very good at what they do. And it means that we can continue to put parties on with lineups that we want in my hometown. How is the environment in London for for techno these days? It's really good, but there's a lot of parties on, you know, compared to how it was maybe five years ago, there's so much more happening. So, you are in a situation where there's crossover with DJs. I mean, that's something that you've got to be very, very mindful of. And, uh, but there's more happening now than I can remember, to be honest.
0: And this is sort of despite it being a very difficult time for actual proper nightclubs. I mean, it seems like in London, the big thing is moving to venues that are outside of clubs. I mean, do you think yes. that, that that's a really good
1: development? Yes and no, I think the spaces some of the spaces are incredible i mean that 's how the kind of warehouse vibe is how it all began really you know it was they're great places to have parties, but unfortunately, a lot of people require a lot more in the way of services than you know they don 't want to spend five pounds on a on a can of warm beer and there 'd be one toilet for for a thousand people they They want more so th- this is where you you have a problem people don 't just want to turn up to an empty warehouse and listen to music anymore they they want the other stuff going around so how this will end up i really don't know but it's very prevalent at the moment but there's more and more venues coming on board and with facilities you need to put on bigger parties so yeah you are here in berlin right now to play a blueprint showcase
0: later tonight tomorrow morning whatever however you want to call it in sort of berlin time Uh, and you're doing it at bear this club has obviously been massive for for techno over Mm. the last five six seven
1: eight years when did you first made contact with it? I'm not sure. A long time ago. I mean, I know we've done a blueprint night there for the last, I don't know if this is the third or the fourth one, always at the beginning of the year. But yeah, I've been, I've been playing here for a while and we are fortunate enough to be able to put on a showcase like this. I mean, this one is in conjunction with MDR with, with Marcel Detman. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a real pleasure to be able to be involved and, and put on a, a lineup like this in this club. And yeah, so the, the, the relationship has been ongoing for quite a period of time. Mm-hmm. It's obviously been kind
0: of the center of techno in, in a lot of ways for many years now. You DJ all over the place these mm. days. Uh, do you have a sense of what, you know, is there another place coming up that's like Berlin in a way for techno? I mean, is, is there like a new center forming somewhere?
1: Have you come across anything uh, that, that's I'm really not- struck you out, out there in the world? I think it's dangerous to sort of say there's a centre of techno you know I, I think the fact that the whole global nature of it means that there's things happening everywhere whether it's a party for 100 people or a party for 10,000 people there's there's things happening in cities all over the world and you know travel is so much easier now and people can go to wherever they want in the world and find a party so as a centre you, you know Berlin's incredibly important as is London you know there's all these different areas that are instrumental in in the scene itself so as I say, there's amazing parties for, for a handful of people and amazing parties for thousands. It's, it's global.
0: Your name is really synonymous with, with techno and kind of with a very specific sort of pared down techno. Mm. I was curious to ask, do you listen to much music that is not techno?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't spend as much time listening to music as I'd like. You know, I certainly don't sit at home listening to to, to techno. Um, you know, once I get out of the studio, I would not put techno records on. <laughs> I spend a lot of time in the studio, so that that's kind of my main listening time is there. So in theory, yeah, I guess
0: it tends to happen. I think yeah, when you're working in it or something like that. With all of that time spent in the studio, what have you been working on, and have you been continuing to sort of see your sound progress?
1: Um, you know, I definitely feel that I'm in a new phase at the moment, just purely for my working practice. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the way that I've I've um, you know, it's taken me a long time to actually get the studio and the way I'm working how I want it. And I feel that I'm much, much closer now than I've been to to what I'm trying to achieve. So it's a very productive time at the moment. I didn't do a great deal of, of solo material for a couple of years, so... um you know, I had the jealous God twelve, the blueprint release recently, and I'm I'm just cutting new twelve next week. So I'm you know I'm I'm very proactive with my setup at the moment, and and things are progressing much more how I want them to. So yeah, I'm also uh, working on an album with Mark Broom again, and putting an OVR record together with Carl. That's cool.
0: Yeah, with the Mark Broom project because it it sounds like that one is somewhat far along.
1: What's the concept with the album? Um, there isn't one really. It's it's all about what you're feeling at a certain point. I mean, how it, it, it's very different to you know what we would do in a solo sense. So, yeah, it's progressing to a point where I think we're going to be finished fairly soon. Quite what happens with it, yet, I don't know. Um, we, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And as a as a DJ,
0: or you have been for many years, um, using a laptop. To DJ, correct. You're, you're not playing vinyl at this point.
1: I went from vinyl to to tractor, um, and I was using tractor with the vinyl control. But no, I've I'm I'm not using that anymore. I've I'm now on the the CDJs. Mm. Are but,
0: you still collecting vinyl?
1: Yeah, o- always. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I love vinyl. I love the the ownership. I, you know, I love the I love everything about vinyl. You know, it's it's how I got involved with all of this. It's it's what yeah i'm i'm a collector it's it's very very important i mean you know blueprint for example would never be a digital label because then it, it sort of doesn't exist for me if you see what i mean it's uh, it's very important you have something tangible